Turn with me, if you will, to the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews. And in the few minutes that we have left, we want to continue our studies in this letter. Hebrews chapter 6. This week we talked about a category of people who cannot be made right with God. God has shown them his kindness, he's shown them his love, he's shown them his mercy, his forgiveness, his cross, his son. And they have turned their back on the light that they've received, they've walked away from God, and there's really nothing more that God can do for them. He's utilized every weapon that he has to his disposal to overcome their resistance, and there's nothing left to do. They've chosen to resist the light of the glorious gospel as they see it in the face of Christ and go their own way. This is the group that's described for us in in verse 4 of chapter 6. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they then fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. These are those, having looked in the face of Christ, then align themselves with the group that stood at the foot of the cross and cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Our writer says there's no chance for repentance. Now, there are some New Testament scholars that translate that phrase The last phrase in verse 6, while they are crucifying the Son of God. And that is a possible translation of that phrase. If so, the author is simply saying as long as they resist the Lordship of Christ, as long as they take sides with those that crucified the Lord, there's nothing more that can be done. But, But for myself, I think there is a point at which there is no longer any hope for repentance. They have... They have taken their stand with those who want no part of God in their life. The interesting thing is that people who do that, who resist the Son, usually end up denying the Father as well. John makes that point. Those who have the Son have the Father. Those who do not have the Son do not have the Father. And these are often the people who are so hostile and so bitter toward, toward Christians. Their talk, their writings, their attitude... Just reeks of hostility. I used to be invited to a sociology class uh, in a college uh, near here to speak every year, and uh, the professor of the class would sit at the back of the room with a copy of Bertrand Russell, one of his books, and would try to feed me to the students. Uh, I thought at the time that if this man lived in another era, he would probably try to feed me to the lions. His hatred of Christianity was just that intense, and I think it's this class of people that our writer is describing here. They come that close to acknowledging the lordship of Christ, and then they turn away. Now, I do not believe these are people that have been regenerated. They have not yet acknowledged Jesus as Lord, but they have come very, very close. And what this passage teaches us is that one can look very good, can get very near to being an authentic Christian, and not have the real thing. But our writer says, I am convinced of better things of you, in verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, of those who fall away. We are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. And then the rest of the chapter is an unfolding of his 
his confidence. He knows they belong to God on the basis of three facts. One, he sees a marked change in their life. Two, he has the certainty of the promise of God. And three, he has the work of the Son of God. And by those three marks, they are identified and they are secure. Now, first he refers to the change of their life in verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him. All of our work, all of our love, all of our ministry, all of our service is done because we love him. The love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. One mark of regeneration is life, God's life within us. We have a forsythia bush right outside of our kitchen. The thing looks dead as a doornail all winter, but just about this time of the year it starts to bud out and puts those beautiful yellow flowers that characterize, puts out those beautiful yellow flowers that characterize forsythia and suddenly it comes alive. Now that's what our writer is saying. I just ignore the kids who are back there. If we can't ignore them. That's what our writer is saying. If, 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 if there's real life, authentic life, if we have been begotten of God, then our, our character will change. Our life will reflect that, the new life that, uh, that we possess. We'll be different people instead of thinking in terms of ourselves and wanting to minister to ourselves and, and aggrandize ourselves and take care of ourselves and protect ourselves. We want to love God and we want to serve his people. There is that desire within us to, to give ourselves to him. There's devotion to him that, that grows naturally out of that, uh, that new life that we possess. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, You used to be sexually immoral. You used to be fornicators and adulterers and liars and cheats and thieves and, and uh, malicious gossips. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. You've been changed. You've been sanctified. You've been renewed. You've been cleansed. Oh, it's not that we can't occasionally fall back into those sins because we do, but we can't practice them. We can't maintain a lifestyle of sexual immorality or, or thievery or, fa- or false witness. We're changed. And uh, that, he says, is an evidence that you belong to God. I've seen your work and I've seen the love that you've shown to him as you, as you helped others. You're working on your lives. You're nurturing your love for Christ. You're serving others. The second mark of life is the certainty of God's promise, the impossibility that he could fail. Verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. And here he returns to that wonderful old example of faith and patience in the Old Testament, Abraham. As I've said before, the Old Testament is an ABC book of, of God's working. See Abraham, see Abraham run, see Abraham exercise faith, see Abraham stumbling in his relationship with Sarah, see God taking care of Abraham no matter what he does or what he says. Abraham began life in his relationship with God as an old moon-worshipping pagan in Ur of the Chaldees. God reached out, touched his life there, and drew him to himself. And then he said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to enrich your life. 
I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make of you a great nation and I'm going to give you a seed and, and I'm going to give that seed, those descendants, a, a place to live and in that place they're going to enrich the whole world and ultimately the seed will come that was promised to Eve who would put an end to the mess that we've made of life, this one who would crush the head of, of the serpent, serpent and once for all end our, our struggles on this, on this earth. And Genesis, Abraham just believed God. He just entrusted himself to God. As unlikely as it seemed that he would have a son, he was, in, he was around 75. Sarah was a bit younger, but she was incapable of having any children. The text tells us that, that he believed God. And a few years later, God cut a contract with Abraham. That's the idiom that's used in the Old Testament. They didn't make contracts. They cut contracts because what they did was to cut animals in half, put the halves of the animals on both sides of a path, and walk in between them. See, God condescended to utilize the standard contract, standard form contract of that day. That's the way contracts were made. We don't know exactly why they cut the animals in two, perhaps to indicate, may this happen to me and you if we break, if either one of us break the contract. We don't know. But in any case, that's the way they did it. Except on this occasion, God and Abraham did not walk hand in hand together through the the carcasses that had been divided. God put Abraham to sleep. He caused a deep sleep to fall on Abraham. He put him out of business, propped him up against a tree and said, I don't need you anymore. Take a nap. I'm going to cut this contract all by myself. And he walked through the halves of the animals himself in, in symbolic form, you see. To indicate to Abraham, I not only am going to bless you and enrich your life, I'm going to see to it that you behave in such a way that I can enrich your life. And that's what God has promised for us. A little later on, uh, after the child Isaac was, was born, God spoke to Abraham one morning and he said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him up on the mountain that I will show you. And Abraham just uh, got up and packed up his gear, took his son, started off toward Mount Moriah. As you know, the child's life was spared, but Abraham didn't know that. He was thinking all along on that trip, this is the end of my hope. But as Hebrews puts it, Abraham reckoned that God was able, even able to raise him from the dead. He knew that God was could be counted on. His word was sure. It was certain. When God made a promise, he didn't renege. It's impossible for him to lie. He knew that somehow he would he would fulfill his word to Abraham. So he takes the boy up to the top of the mountain. As you know, the boy's life is spared. God provided a substitute, a, a goat, a ram. And that ram was, was sacrificed. And then God said a very interesting thing to Abraham. And this is the passage that our text quotes. He swore by himself. Theologians uh, say this was a monergistic covenant. That's one of those long words you have to use every once in a while because you paid a lot to learn them. All it means is he did it all by himself. He didn't need any help from anybody. He didn't need Abraham's contribution. He did it all by himself. And then he said an interesting thing to Abraham. He said, because you did this thing, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to enrich your life. Now, it appears that at this point, the covenant is conditioned upon Abraham's obedience. When long before the seed was promised, God told him that I'm going to 
do this for you whether you contribute or not. And now he says, because you contributed, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to enrich you, I'm going to fulfill my promises through your seed. And we say, what, what is this? Well, it's God saying, I'm going to see to it that you behave in such a way that I can fulfill my promise to you. The whole deal, you see, depends upon God. Uh, I, I just uh, cut another contract with a book publisher to write a book. I asked someone the other day if, I'd read my, if they'd read my last book, and they said, I hope so. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, there is another one coming. And uh, I looked at the contract, and they said, you write the book, and you turn in this many manuscripts in this form and so forth. That was my side of the deal. And then they said, we'll, uh, we'll do the finish edit, and we'll print it, and we'll publish it, and we'll promote it, and so forth. That was their part of the deal. I suppose they called me up and, one day and they said, uh, this is the offer we're making for you. We're going to write the book. We're going to edit the book. We're going to publish the book. We're going to sell the book. We're going to promote it. And then we're going to send you the royalties. And I say, well, what, what do I have to do? And he said, well, all you have to do is walk down to the mailbox and pick up the check. Boy, such a deal I would get. But you see, this is, this is essentially what, what God did for Abraham. He promised that he was going to bless him. He promised that he was going to give him a seed. He promised that he would so shape Abraham's character that he would be able to enrich and, and bless him. The whole thing, the whole proposition depended upon, upon God's doing. Now, in order to, to make it very clear that this was the case, he swore by himself. That's what the ancients did. The people in the ancient Near East, they swore by some higher authority, as we do. You go into a court of law today and you lay your hand on the Bible. And you say, I swear to tell the whole truth, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. We're swearing by a higher authority. God doesn't have any a higher authority by which to swear. So he swore by himself. God said, I will do this by myself. And it's that that the writer picks up in verse 16. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose, his purpose to bless Abraham and his descendants. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. The heirs, that's us. According to Galatians 3, 29, we are the seed of Abraham. We're the spiritual seed. John was the one that first planted that notion in, in people's minds when, when the Jews of his day were saying, we are Abraham's children. And John said, no, God's able to raise up children from stones. He can supernaturally raise up children, and that's what he's doing today. He's raising up a nation from Jew and Gentile, from every race upon the earth, and these become the true Jews, the heirs. Of the inheritance. And what the writer wants us to know is that what God promised to Abraham, which was a certain and sure salvation, he promises to us. And then he swears by himself so there will be no question. God did this in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable, immutable, unbreakable, unrustable, non-degradable things... 
in which it is impossible for one such as God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Greatly encouraged. What a masterpiece of understatement. Greatly encouraged, I would say so, to know that my salvation depends upon God's word. He has sworn by himself. He cannot lie. He is immutable. He cannot change. And so once I'm in his hands, I cannot Get away from him. He will hound me. He will harass me. He will haunt me. He will hunt me down. He'll do everything he can to see to it that I begin to conform to the character of his son so he can enrich my life. Well, I have to cooperate. I have to go along with him. But you see, that's my part. His part is to see to it that, I, that his promises are, are fulfilled. And once I belong to him, those promises will be fulfilled. He who has begun a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ. Years ago, I overheard a conversation between Ray Stedman and a young man. He came into his office and he said to Ray, uh, the Christian life's just too hard. I'm going to give it up. I can't do it anymore. And Ray, Ray looked him right in the face and said, you can't. He said, what do you mean I can't? So I can walk away from the Lord anytime I want to. And Ray said, no, I know you. I know you too well. You can't. And the young, young man stood there for a moment, and then a big smile broke across his face, and he said, you're right, I can't. Many of you have had the same experience. You've wanted to, you know, it's just hard sometimes being a Christian. It's just hard trying to be real and authentic and to permit God's grace to be manifest in our lives, to respond to people as God would have us respond. It's tough. It's hard. Sometimes we want to quit. Well, we just can't. We can't. God has committed himself to us. He's promised that he's going to see this whole process through to the end. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for such as God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. I don't have time to talk about this particular facet of the text, but when he refers to the fact that we have fled to Jesus. I really think he has in mind the cities of refuge, uh, six of which were constructed during the time when Israel came into the land, began to possess the land. There were places to which people could, could flee, time of trouble, if they were guilty of manslaughter. And uh, a relative of the person that was killed tried to take their life. They could run to that place of, of refuge and find safety and and I think that's the picture that he wants to evoke in our minds. And it's a wonderful picture of a safe and secure place where no one can touch us. No one can take our lives. We're secure to the very end. Now, the third aspect of the text, the third basis uh, of confidence is in verse 19. We have this hope. And remember, hope in the New Testament is not uh, has no note of contingency and it's not a hope, a hope, a hope. But it rather has the idea of certainty. Something we believe that's yet future. We have this confidence, this hope, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Just quickly now, the writer mixes his metaphors. He first describes uh, our security uh, in terms, in nautical terms, in terms of an anchor that's safe and secure. It won't slip. It won't break. It's 
It's fixed and certain. And he has in mind here the practice in those ancient days of taking the anchor into the harbor in a smaller ship. These large sailing ships that they used were very ungainly and difficult to manage in a wind and, and tricky. It was tricky trying to get them into the anchorage. And so they would take the anchor from the big ship and they would put in a little rowboat and they'd row the anchor into the harbor and they would set the anchor and then the cable would extend out to the uh, larger ship and they would winch themselves into the uh, into the harbor uh, by uh, cranking themselves along the cable up up to the anchor and that's the picture that uh, that he wants us to see our lord has anchored us upward not downward but we're anchored in in the holy place in the, in the eternal sanctuary uh that, that anchor is safe and secure the flukes are stuck well into the into the rock. There's no way it can be broken or shaken. We're secure. And uh, we're just waiting for the time that, that we arrive at home. In, in the anchorage. In the harbor. Now that's one metaphor that he uses. The other is the old picture of the high priest on the Day of Atonement going in and making sacrifice. The high priest would uh, clothe himself in, in unblemished uh, linen. There's a picture of the, the righteousness and perfection of our high priest, the Lord Jesus. He would wash himself thoroughly. Again, a picture of Jesus' sinless character. He would sacrifice a lamb, lay his hands on the head of the lamb and confess the sins, his own sins and the sins of the people. And then the little lamb would be killed and he would take the blood in a basin into the inner sanctuary. And in that inner sanctuary was a, a box about the size of an army footlocker. And uh, it, it, it depicted the presence of God. Symbolically, that was the place where God dwelt. Now, the Jews knew that God uh, existed everywhere. He wasn't localized in time or space, but that was simply a, a, a picture of God dwelling in, in their midst. Emmanuel, God with us. And inside that box were the broken tablets of the law. And the priest would take that bowl of, of blood, that little basin of blood from the lamb, and he would sprinkle the blood on the top of the mercy seat, it was called, the place of atonement, the place of propitiation. And in effect, God looking down through that blood could not see the broken law. What a wonderful, you see, that's what I mean when I say the, the Old Testament is, is like ABCs. It, it gives us in graphic, pictorial form the substance of our salvation. God looks down through the blood of our Lord Jesus, and he does not see the broken law. There is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, those of us that are in Christ Jesus our Lord, you see. And he mingles those two pictures, our Lord taking that anchor into the inner sanctuary, and placing it in the ground, that is what makes us secure and stable. And nothing, nothing can shake us. It's our destiny, you see. Settle. Not to worry about it anymore. If we have acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord, then we are kept safe in the Father's hands. Now, that's the basis on which he appeals for obedience. Back uh, to uh, verse 12. Let's begin reading verse 11. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. In other words, don't quit along the way. Don't stop before you're done. 
uh, as some wag has put it, if your faith fizzles before you're finished, it was never firm uh, in the beginning. There was another F in there, but I've forgotten what it is. Uh, He says, I want you to make your hope sure, work it out to the end, keep on trucking, keep plugging away, don't quit, don't give up, stay with it, don't get discouraged, don't fall out of ranks, Just, just, just stay with it. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who faith and patience inherit what was promised. And then we saw exhibit A of faith and patience, Abraham. God told Abraham he would have a child when he was incapable of having children, when his wife had already gone through the menopause. Abraham and Sarah simply did what couples do when they want to have children, knowing that they couldn't have any children, humanly speaking, but believing God's promise. And 25 years later, God fulfilled his promise. People say to me sometimes, I've been struggling against a habit for years and years, and I can't overcome it. I'm just, it's not worth it. I'm going to give it up. I say, how long have you been working at this thing? And they say, well, three or four years and I say, you haven't been working at it long enough. Abraham stuck with it for 25 years before he saw the promise. So the writer says, don't become lazy, slothful, sluggish. Now, he's not talking about indifference here. He's talking about an, a state of mind that sets in when, when, when we're discouraged, when we struggle against difficult situations, when we have gone to war against obsessive, compulsive traits and and uh, we have habits that keep uh, overwhelming us, and uh, or we have a difficult family situation, or there are difficult relationships that overwhelm us, or our jobs are more than we can handle, or we're so deeply in debt we can see no way out. These these are the times that we're inclined to want to give up and get sluggish. This is the term that the medieval theologians referred to as sloth, acedia. It's more than just laziness. It's a lack of activity because we've been deeply hurt and discouraged. Uh, Dorothy Sayers says, It is that attitude that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with no one, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains remains alive because there's nothing for which it, it will die. It's, it's, it's when our heart is taken out of us and we no longer want to continue on, the writer says, don't become lazy. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Now, patience for some people is a bad term. It, it, it's reminiscent of those days that we were traveling cross-country and we were little children sitting in the back seat and our parents kept saying, be patient, be patient. Or those times when we miss an airplane we have to sit in an airport and there's nothing to do, and those times seem so meaningless, and we drum our fingers and fidget, and we, we don't like this idea of being patient. But this word in the New Testament is, is a bigger term than that. It's sometimes translated fortitude, sometimes endurance. It has the idea of, of staying with something no matter what, what the cost, no matter how difficult the thing may be. And what the writer is talking about here is continuing to do what God has called you to do. Do the will of God no matter how much difficulty you encounter, nor how many times you fail, you just pick yourself up and you dust yourself off and you get going again. You keep on trucking. 
the way Abraham did. I love that little portrayal of, of David and Goliath because that's my favorite story too. Uh, I agree with Barbara. That's, that's a terrific story. And you notice they had to kill Goliath twice before they finally got him down. And actually, if you know the story, David took with him five little stones. This morning I said three little stones, and one of the little children stuck up his hand like that. They were way ahead of me. Uh, five stones in his bag. Why? Well, because he might miss the first time. And that's the attitude we have to have toward these ugly habits that rear their head and want to overwhelm us, these giants in our lives that are inclined to defeat us. We, we sling once, and we may miss the first time. We sling again, we may miss the second time, but we just stay at it, just stay with it. It's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. I was going to leave with you uh, James' comment. I'll just refer to it quickly, and you can look it up on your own. It's in James 5. James says, you've heard of the prophets who endured. Take Job, for example. Now, there's a man who was patient. And at the end of his life, we see the Lord's outcome, that the Lord is gracious and merciful. Now, we're inclined to read that as though the outcome of uh, Job's life was the last chapter of Job, in which he got back all the, all the material things that he had lost in the first chapter. But that's not at all what James is talking about. The word that, is, that he uses for outcome is the word for ultimate end. And he tells us what the ultimate end was. And he wanted to give up many, many times. But toward the end, he says, I have heard of you. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now I see you. He saw God in a new way. He saw God's mercy. He saw God's resources. And that's what happens to us. As we keep plugging away at these things in our life that create difficulty for us and cause difficulty for others, and we just keep persisting, working at them, believing God, counting on his promises. We get up and go at these things again, knowing that our destiny is secure. We're not going to fall out. We're not going to lose out in the end. It's certain. It's sure. But in the meantime, we exercise faith and patience, endurance. Because it is by faith and patience that we inherit the promises. Let's uh, stand, shall we? Please don't forget the retiring offering for the children. All of that uh, offering will go to meet their expenses, their traveling expenses, as well as for the, their ministry in Uganda. Let's pray. This text is of great encouragement to us. If we were to look at our own lives and the failures and flaws in us, we would have given up long ago. We're grateful that you have never given up on us. We come to you and, and we submit to your lordship. We ask you to be our shepherd and to follow you, and you take it upon yourself then to enable us to make our way through life you promise that the work you've begun in us, you will complete. And you're not a liar. It's not in your character. And so while we're working this out, Lord, we're just grateful that our future is secure, that sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down, but we thank God we're, we're heaven-bound. What a wonderfully secure position that is. Give us the grace to keep working and these hard things in our life to produce to a greater extent a likeness to you. We want, we desperately want to be more like you in, 
demeanor and character. We want to have your gentleness, your moral courage, your fortitude, all the things that the Father has promised to give us. Thank you for this time together. We thank you in Jesus' name.